Welcome to The Common Rounds. Medical education for medical students by medical students. In today's discussion, we'll be covering aortic dissections. So dissections refers to a tear in the aortic intimate leading to blood entering the media. If it's been present for less than two weeks, it's considered acute. If it's been present for more than two weeks, it's considered to be chronic. And there are a number of classification systems um, utilized in the diagnosis and management of aortic dissections. Stanford classification is divided into type A and type B. And type A refers to dissections involving the ascending aorta. And type B involves dissections in the aortic arch and or the descending aorta. Another system that you might have come across is called the Baker system, and that divides it into three. Type 1 involves intimal tears in the ascending aorta and involving the descending aorta. Type 2 is dissections limited to ascending aorta, and type 3 is intimal tear in the descending aorta and distal propagation. Now, before we talk about the pathogenesis, let's talk about the histology of blood vessels. As you may be aware, there are three different layers within a blood vessel. There's the tunica external or the adventitia layer, and that's comprised of collagen and elastic fibers. There's the tunica media or the medial layer, and that's composed of smooth muscles mixed with or without elastic fibers. And in arteries, it's separated from other tunics by the external and internal elastic layers. There's the tunica internal or the intimal layer, which is composed of endotheliums and supporting basement membranes, and that's the closest to the lumen of the blood vessels. Looking at the pathogenesis, dissection occurs where shear stress on the aorta is large. So this is usually in the ascending aorta or descending thoracic aorta below the ligamentum arteriosum. Dissection is initiated by a primary intimal tear with subsequent dissection into the media or a medial hemorrhage dissecting into and disrupting the intima. Aortic blood flow then moves along the elastic lamina and a false lumen is created. Dissection is usually continues distally along these descending aorta and can affect the major branches leading to ischemia. Secondary distal intimal disruption can occur where you get re-entry of blood from the false lumen back into the aorta. Now there are two main initiating events which are exacerbated by hypertension. So hypertension is really important. You can have acute intramural hematoma where you get rupture of the vasoversorum, which are the small blood vessels in the actual blood vessel wall, and hemorrhage into the wall of the aorta can then take place. You can also have atherosclerotic ulcers where you get erosion of a plaque into the aortic medium and that usually can be a triggering event. Now, other important risk factors to be aware of is patients with connective tissue disorders like Marfan's or Ehlers-Danlos disease, congenital disorders such as aortic bifurcation, i.e. in Turner's patients, bicuspid aorta, aortitis, which can be infective like syphilis and TB or vasculitis, which can be as a result of takayasus, or itrogenic if a patient's having an angioplasty and we accidentally damage the aorta as we're going into the heart. Now, what are the signs and symptoms of aortic dissection? Patients can have sudden onset severe tearing chest pain radiating to the back, and this is often in the intrascapular region. They can present with syncope, dyspnea, hypertension, or hypertension. They can have asymmetric or loss of pulses between the arms if the outflow tract, for example, on one side is blocked by an enlarging dissection. They can present with aortic regurgitation if the aortic root is being enlarged because of the dissection, or they can have ischemia secondary to obstruction of the aortic branches by this enlarging dissection. So they can have MI, present with paraplegia if the spine, spinal arteries are affected. They can present with bowel ischemia if the superior mesenteric artery, for example, is affected. An enlarging dissection could also compress the esophagus, so these patients can present with dysphagia. They can present with cervical sympathetic change symptoms resulting in Horner's syndrome or airway obstruction if the dissecting aorta is blocking the trachea or impinging on the trachea. What are some differential diagnoses to keep in mind when you're approaching or when you see a patient presenting with these symptoms to the emergency department? 
You want to consider some other cardiac causes like acute coronary syndrome, so if they're presenting with an MI. Pericarditis and cardiac tamponade are also important considerations. Some non-cardiac causes can include pulmonary emboli or a pneumothorax, or even simple MSK causes like costochondritis or chest trauma. Don't forget your gastrointestinal um, presentations as well. So if patients are presenting with severe reflux, esophageal perforations, or pancreatitis or cholecystitis. In terms of the investigations to work up a patient, let's start with the easy things first. Let's perform uh, some blood work to look at the electrolytes, looking at the renal function and other baseline characteristics, looking at the full blood count to look at evidence of infection or hemorrhage, looking at performing atroponin if it's indicated to rule out an MI, performing lactate levels to see whether there's evidence of ischemia, lipase to rule out pancreatitis, and depending on the Wells criteria, you might even consider a D-dimer if they have a low probability to rule out PE. An ECG could also be very useful by looking at evidence of myelin cut, infarction, or arrhythmias. And finally, the most important imaging or investigation that you can do is the imaging. So an x-ray may assist quickly in differentiating cardiac versus pulmonary causes, looking at wide and superior mediastinum, looking at left-sided parole effusion secondary to bleeding into the space because of a ruptured aortic dissection. Transthoracic echocardiogram is also very useful. It has a sensitivity of 60 to 80%, but it's more uh, sensitive for diagnosis of ascending dissection than descending dissections of the aorta. Transosophageal echocardiogram is highly sensitive, but it's more invasive because you have to go into the mouth and into the esophagus. But it can accurately visualize the aortic valves and give us an idea of whether there's evidence of regurgitation. CT is very useful, it's quick to perform, and it's accurate for identifying intimal flap and the extent of dissection and involvement of major arteries. Now, in some centers, they might also perform a magnetic resonance angiography. That's also very accurate, but because this is a highly time-sensitive disease, then it's very important to be able to perform the test quickly. So in this case, CT might be the better option. So once a diagnosis is made, how do we treat these patients? Now, these guys can present with extreme hemodynamic instability. So you want to go through your ABCDs and ensure that the patient is hemodynamically stable and address any life-threatening conditions or complications first. You can treat them pharmacologically by reducing the blood pressure to a systolic of 110 and a heart rate of less than 60 beats per minute. And this can be achieved with intravenous beta blockers such as metoprolol. Or if beta blockers are contraindicated, for example, in patients with severe asthma or COPD, you can use a non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers like diltiazem or verapamil. Supplementary blood pressure lowering agents can also be used if you're not getting the target, such as sodium nitroprusside or an ACE inhibitor. An isolated use of acidilators should be avoided in these patients given the risk of reflex tachycardia and worsening dissection. Surgical correction is a definitive treatment approach. It's preferred for type A and complicated type E aortic dissections. So a complicated type E aortic dissection is considered one that involves spinal, mesenteric or limb ischemia if a patient has continued pain or impending rupture. Surgery usually involves intimal flap excision, obliteration of the false lumen and replacement of the graft. Stenting of the narrowed branch vessels can also occur to return blood flow to those ischemic regions. You can also consider aortic valve replacement or endovascular options for type B. In general, type A is performed by cardiothoracic surgeons and type B is performed by vascular surgeons. From a long-term point of view, though, you want to manage the patient's hypertension and decrease cardiac contractility with the use of beta blockers or other agents such as ACE inhibitors. And in chronic uh, type B patients, you want to perform a CT or MRI every 6 to 12 months to monitor for expansion or propagation. Now, this brings our presentation to an end. We hope you found it useful. If you have found our talks useful, please go and review us on uh, iTunes. It means a lot. Like us on Facebook. And if you're a visual learner, be sure to check out our YouTube channel for notes and other videos as well. Thank you. 
Our episode today was put together by our executive producer Gautam and our co-editor Cindy. For notes, elective experiences, and much more study resources, visit our website on thecommonrounds.wordpress.com or visit us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. If you like our episodes, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. It means a lot to us. You've been listening to The Common Rounds. I'm Hamid. And I'm Andy. And we'll see you next time. See you next time.